Our scripture reading this morning will be taken from uh, two books of the Bible, the Old Testament book of Proverbs and then the New Testament book of Matthew, and these uh, scripture readings will be up on the screen here. Beginning with Proverbs chapter 14, verse 3, Proverbs 14, verse 3 says, In the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. And then from Proverbs 25, 27, it is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. And then from Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And then from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is God's word. Well, a young man at a construction site kept bragging to everybody in the yard just how strong he was and just how he could outdo anybody else there in the yard in a feat of strength. And he made a special case at making fun of the older workers. And after a while, this got old. And so one of the older workers had had enough and said to the young buck, Hey, buddy, why don't you just put your money where your mouth is? I'll bet you a week's pay that I can haul something in this wheelbarrow over that building over there that you'll never be able to haul back. And the young buck said, you're on, old man, I can do it. And in front of all the other workers, the old man reached out, grabbed the wheelbarrow by the handles. Then he turned to the young buck in front of all the older workers and said, all right, get in. In the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, and pride is the word of the day. We're going to talk about pride, and we have been in a journey through uh, the life of an Old Testament heroine called Esther, and we're going to look at what pride looks like, not in her life, but in the life of the antagonist, or the villain in the story of Esther. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to uh, the book of Esther. In, uh, it's on page 354 of your church Bibles. And Esther is about the life, about the story of a Jewish orphan who became queen of the Persian Empire. And in doing so, she found out why she became queen. She found out that the reason why she had been given the privilege of serving as queen was to save the Hebrew people from annihilation. And it was out of the Hebrew people then that came the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior of the world. And so, so today we're going to look at this villain named Haman. Esther is the heroine, Haman is the villain. 
Esther the protagonist, Haman the antagonist. And Haman is a, just a classic textbook case study about pride. I mean, if you open the dictionary uh, to, to pride, there's Haman's face right there. And this morning, we're going to see, I want to answer three questions. The first question is, what does pride look like in Haman's life? From Haman's life, uh, from what the Bible describes of Haman, okay, how do we understand how the Bible defines pride? What is pride? That's question number one. The second question is, so where will such a life lead? If we buy into, if we, if we take a train ride on pride, what's at the end of the line? We're going to see that. And then thirdly, is there hope? Is there a cure? Uh, if, if, if one of Haman's descendants happened to be here today, is there hope? And we're going to answer that question as well. So that's where we're going this morning. And, and let me just tell you, here's why this is so important. And just eyes up here for a moment, please. Listen, um, uh, Mark Brooks from the New York Times wrote an article uh, not long ago called the Modesty Manifesto. And in that article, he says, we are an overconfident species. He's talking about Americans. Brooks talks about the magnification of the self. He talks about a glut of self-esteem that is especially rampant in the United States. And he offers statistics that would lead a reasonable person to that conclusion, such as this. When pollsters ask people from around the world to rate themselves on different traits, Americans usually supply most of the positive self-ratings. He says, although American students do not perform well on global math tests, they are among the world leaders in having self-confidence about their math abilities. Uh, He says, 94% of college professors believe they have above-average teaching skills. All right? Uh, That reminds me of the little quip, little story I heard about a, a preacher who was driving home from church with his wife especially happy about the successful sermon that he had just preached in church. And he, he, he said to his wife, he said, Honey, I, I, I really wonder, I wonder, how many really great preachers are there out there? To which his wife said, Honey, I love you one less than you think. Right? So, yeah. That's not a personal testimony either. I want you to know that. So, right. so I don't think it is. My... Maybe it is. I don't know. But, uh, so you get what Brooks is saying here. I mean, here's one more. Uh, Brooks says that um, a few decades ago, it would have been unthinkable for a baseball player to celebrate himself in the batter's box after hitting a home run. Today's routine. There's, there, there's abundant evidence to suggest that we have shifted from a culture that emphasized self-effacement, you know, I'm not better than anybody else, and nobody else is better than me, to a culture that emphasizes self-expansion. Self-expansion. Why? Isn't that another word for pride? So, so we need to pay attention to that. And, and we, as uh, 
congregation need to pay attention to that. And here's why. Before we leave today, we're going to pray over some of our missions teams. We're sending out missions teams to Ethiopia, to the Dominican Republic, El Paso, Peru. And here we have an opportunity to engage in a culture which probably probably shares some of the concerns that Mark Brooks talks about, all right? And by the grace of God, maybe some from our congregation will be given the opportunity to correct some misperceptions. But, but see, to correct the misperception is not enough to say, well, oh, not all Americans are like that, because it's really not about us being Americans. It's about us being Christians. It's about us being believers. See, that's the vision. That's what we're trying to communicate to those that we serve, you see. We want to take away the, the roadblocks that come from a haughty spirit and truly be Jesus. So let's learn from Haman this morning, all right? Beginning with this first question, what does pride look like in Haman's life? Well, in chapters 1 and 2, we learn that Esther has become queen of the empire and we meet Haman in the beginning of Esther chapter 3. Haman is appointed by King Xerxes to be the prime minister of the empire. And this is an interesting thing that we learn about Haman right off the bat. It's kind of fascinating. Verse 2 says, so Haman is promoted to the office of prime minister. And, in is, and, and all the other officials have to bow down and to show deference to him and, and kneel to him and pay him honor, etc., etc. Verse 2 of chapter 3 says, For the king had commanded this concerning him. Now that's just kind of odd there because, well, that was just instinctive. Why would that need to be said anyway? I mean, that specifically the king had commanded. Now you're going to have to make sure that you bow down to Haman, it almost kind of gives you the impression that Haman was this obnoxious guy. That maybe he was the one who was kind of prompting the king to say, make sure you tell them that they have to bow down to me because I'm the prime minister. It's just, just kind of funny there, you know. Well, everybody did that except for Mordecai. Mordecai is the guardian, uh, was the father figure of Esther while she was growing up, and he, he was a government official there in the Persian Empire, and Mordecai refuses to feed the idol uh, of personal significance in the life of Haman, so he doesn't bow down before him at all. And this just absolutely enrages Haman. It just absolutely sets him off. Sets him off to the degree that he's going to just... He, he decides he's going to kill Mordecai. Not only that he's going to kill Mordecai, he's going to kill Mordecai's race. I mean, that's kind of like detonating an atomic bomb just to kill a bunny rabbit. It's, it is overkill. Tells you about the kind of person Haman is. Well, flip over to uh, Esther chapter 5. There's another incident where we get a glimpse of the kind of person Haman is. He he's, steps off stage in chapter 4, but he appears in, again in Esther chapter 5. Queen Esther invites Haman to a banquet, and Haman's the only one on the guest list. So it's the king, it's Esther, it's Haman. And why? Well, we know why. Haman had this annihilation edict issued and 
had Xerxes unwittingly sign it to destroy all of God's people, Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you've got to do something. You've got to use your influence to save yourself and God's, more importantly, God's people. You need to save God's people. And so Esther begins to concoct this uh, sting operation in order to bring Haman down and save God's people. And that's why she invited Haman to one of two banquets. And when Haman found out he was the only one on the guest list, he was just floating on air. He goes home, he brags to his wife, Esther chapter 5, verse 11, uh, about his wealth, about his many sons, about all the ways that the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the nobles and the officials. And I'm the only one he's invited to the banquet. And he's just thrilled. And then, in Esther chapter 6, Haman is summoned to Xerxes, and Xerxes asks him a very simple question. Haman, what should be done to the man to whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks to himself, Esther chapter 6, verse 6, is there anybody else the king would rather honor than me? <laughs> now already we see the kind of guy he is. These three incidents, Esther chapter 3, verse 5, and verse 6. And if you look at those three passages, you get a working definition of the word pride, and it's this. Pride is self-obsessed superiority, which drives me to assert power over others for my puny little kingdom of one. That's pride. That's how the book of Esther defines pride. Let's break that down a little bit. Pride is about being self-obsessed. The author of the book of Esther wants us to know in no uncertain terms that, that you know, uh, Haman's personal vision is, it's all about me. He's, more than anybody else in the book of Esther, we see Haman's inner thoughts and motives and desires. Uh, he is a, he's a pop-up book. That's what, you can see Haman coming a mile away. He, his feelings are on his sleeves, his rage is on his sleeves, his, his happiness is on his sleeves. He is all about himself. Pride is being self-obsessed. And then pride is self-obsessed superiority. Superiority. You see, there's, in the DNA of, of pride is competitiveness. This, this, this drive to feel superior to others. It's not enough that Haman has money. He wants to have more money. Uh, in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he has an entire chapter on pride, and he titles that chapter, The Great Sin. Listen to what Lewis says. Lewis says, Pride takes no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they never are. In reality, they're, they're proud of being richer, more clever, better-looking. If everybody were as rich, clever, and, 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 and good-looking, then there would be nothing to be proud about, you see. So then he says, so if two guys are courting the same girl, the guy that's proud will try to take the girl not because he loves her, but just to prove that he's a better competitor than the other poor sap. You see, that's awful. You don't say. Huh. Lewis says, greed may drive you to acquire possessions, 
but pride will drive you to acquire them just so you can assert your power, see? And that's where we get to this third part here. Self-obsessed superiority, which drives me to assert power in the service of one's own puny little kingdom. And, and, and that's what's behind the annihilation edict that Haman wanted Xerxes to sign off on. You see, it, it's not enough. It's not enough for, for Haman to just kill Mordecai. If Haman were to kill Mordecai, that would just be a one-on-one thing, and that would imply that Mordecai is an equal to Haman. But Haman's going, you're not my equal, so I'm not only going to take you out, but I'm going to take out everybody you represent from your species. You're gone. Asserting power. C.S. Lewis wrote, power is what pride really enjoys. There's nothing that makes a man feel so superior to others than to be able to move them about like toy soldiers. Wow. Self-obsessed superiority driving me to assert power in the service of my puny little kingdom of one. And that make you mad. Makes me mad. In fact, the more I studied Haman, the angrier I got. I just thought, what a jerk, what a snake, what a weasel. If he came to Windsor Road, I'd put him out. I would. I wouldn't even let him on our property. Who do you think you are? Huh? Just, I'm angry just thinking about that, you know? And then you know what happened? I, the angrier I got, then the, then the holier I felt about the angrier I got, you know? It just like made me feel righteous, sort of this righteous indignation at this weasel I just made me feel good about myself, that I would hate someone as wicked as Haman, you know? Just felt good about that. Then I read something else C.S. Lewis wrote. The more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Don't listen to everything he says. Well, maybe you should. Maybe I should. Isn't that true? He says, isn't it because I want to be the big noise that I get so annoyed with someone else who wants to be the big noise? <laughs> Ouch. Guilty. <laughs> right? Guilty. Hello. My, my name is Randy. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I struggle with the sin of pride. <laughs> okay? You're, you're supposed to say, hi, Randy. Come on. Come on. Lewis says the point is that each person's pride is in competition with everybody else's pride. He says if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me, refuse to take any notice of me, or show off? How do you react to other proud people? Wow. See? Well, if we buy into Haman's life of pride, if we get on his train, where, where will that take us? And this is what we see in his life. I'll tell you where pride leads. From Haman's life, we learn that, first of all, pride leads to enslavement. Enslavement. Isn't it interesting that at the end of chapter 5, 
when Haman is so elated and he's bragging to his wife and his uh, friends about how the king has honored him above everybody else and he's got all this wealth and he's got all these sons. And, and, and then he says this in uh, Esther chapter 5, verse 13, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Wow! Think about that. Haman is the number two person in the Persian Empire. He's got all the symbols of success and and property and sons, but one person's refusal to salute just puts him on tilt. It's, It's ironic, isn't it? The second most powerful man in the Persian Empire is a slave to the opinion of a mid level government worker bee. And what we see is that Mordecai has exposed Haman's idol. Because Haman hungered. He, he hungered. he hungered not just for significance, but he hungered to be seen as being significant. You see? And his life and his emotional strings were pulled by the idol of public respect. And when that idol was fed, he was happy. And when that idol was starved... It led to vengeance. And that explains why Haman wants to kill Mordecai by hanging him on a 75-foot-tall pole. That is one long telephone pole. 75 feet. This is 2,500 years ago, folks. I mean, look at the very top of this Worship center. And it, I don't know, what, what are we looking at? 35 feet? So like double that. How's he going to get Mordecai up there in the first place? Maybe some engineers kind of figure that out, huh? My goodness. Why 75 feet? Well, there's never been another 75-foot pole ever built, you see? And Haman's going to be the first. He sees another extension of his pride, another extension of his arrogance. Another extension of him wanting to be superior, huh? He's a slave to it. Everything about his life, he's the number two man, but he's in bondage. He's not only only an enslaved man, but he's also an ignorant man. And this is where we are in Esther chapter 7. You see, Esther chapter 7 tells us about the second banquet to which Haman was invited along with the king. You know, the first banquet, they came, the king said, what would you like, right? What's your request? Huh? It will be granted. What's your petition? Up to half of my kingdom. It's yours. What would you like? And she said, well, come to this second banquet and I'll tell you. And so he comes and, and, and the king says, now it's for the third time. What is your request? It will be granted. What is your petition? Up to half of my kingdom. It will be granted. I mean, he's handing her a blank check, you know, and now she has to talk. Now it's time. And so Esther answers in verse 3. She says, Your Majesty, my request is this. I want my life. That's all I want. I just want want my life. And, And my petition is that I want the life of my people. That's what I want. That's all I want. 
Verse 3 says, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request. Verse 4, for I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. Those were the three exact words found in the edict. Your majesty, I can read. I can read. If we've... we've, If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Do you you hear what it is that that Queen Esther is saying? She uses this word sold twice. Twice she says, Your Majesty, are you aware that someone is selling your property in violation of your interests and in your sovereignty? You see, this phrase, to sell, to sell the Jews implies that another political entity is raiding them from his sovereign power and taking them and putting them into their own sovereign power, and that's treason. Xerxes hears this and he's incensed. Verse 5 says, well, well, well who, who is he and, and where is the man? Where is the man who would dare to do such a thing? And I love how the English Standard Version puts verse 6. Esther says, a foe and an enemy. And she points her finger, this wicked Haman. And Haman's like deer in the headlight, look. You got like his hand caught in the cookie jar, terrified. Oh my goodness, he's been caught in this sting operation. He's ignorant. Never saw it coming. Ignorant. His enslavement made him ignorant. He made him ignorant about Esther. He had no idea that the race he wanted to exterminate included the king's wife. Not smart, Haman. And he was not only ignorant about Esther, he was ignorant about Mordecai. He had no idea that the man he wanted to murder was the man the king delighted to honor. And then he had no idea, he was ignorant about the relationship between Mordecai and Esther. He had no idea that Mordecai was, was Esther's guardian. And, and you know what else? Most, most, mostly, Haman was ignorant about how little effort it took God to bring him down. God doesn't send a death angel. He doesn't send legions of angels to take him down. You know what he did? You know what he did to bring him down? Huh? Chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. God can use insomnia to bring a ninny like Haman down. And he did. And the look, (laughs) the look on Haman's face absolutely gave away his guilt, you know? And Xerxes is livid. He is so angry that he leaves the room. He immediately leaves the room. Now, pay attention here. Little little lesson on um, courtesy, okay? and protocol. If you ever happen to be in the presence of a Persian king and queen, if it ever happens, just want to give you a heads up on protocol, all right? If you're ever in the presence of a king and a queen of the Persian Empire, and the king leaves the room, you must leave the room too, all right? Because it's just, it's just totally against protocol 
for anybody to be in the same room as one of the king's women without the king present there, all right? It's just, that's just bad form. So, so that's what Haman should have done. The minute that the king left the room, Haman should have left the room. That was just protocol. It didn't even need to be written. It's just that's just the way it was understood back then. But the question is this. Where in the world is Haman going to go? He's not going to follow the king because he hasn't been invited to follow the king. And the king is rather furious, right? And he's not going to leave the palace, is he? Because that would make him look really guilty, wouldn't it? Where's he going to go? He has no place else to go. And so he becomes desperate. This enslaved, ignorant man (laughs) becomes a desperate man. And given the protocol that I just discussed with you, he, he, (laughs) he got up and Haman stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And he collapses at the couch where she was reclining to eat. Now what you've got to understand is that even with the king in the room, The protocol was, you stay seven steps, you say a minimum of seven steps away from the queen. queen. That's as close as you get, even with the king in the room. You you got seven steps, that's it, all right? King leaves, you leave. King stays, no closer than seven steps. That's the deal, all right? So Xerxes leaves, this guy rushes over, collapses at the couch, begs for his life, and, 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 and he's saved me. And now get this, this was the same guy who was so incensed at a Jewish man's failure to bow before him, he is now bowing before a Jewish woman pleading for his own wife. How ironic. Haman's just an insecure baby. And in the middle of this, this this flagrant breach of protocol where he's fallen down at the couch of the queen and and he's begging for his life, Xerxes returns and he sees this and he just turns livid. He's green and clothes fly off him and he just, and he says, he says, Will he even rape the queen in my own house? He wasn't going to rape her. He was just a desperate man. Nonetheless, this was such a flagrant breach of protocol. The moment Xerxes said those words, you know what the servants did? They put a bag over Haman's head. You know what that means? He's going to (laughs) die. And right then, the king's favored servant, Harbona, kind of leans over to the king's ear and says, Your Majesty, it may interest you to know that Haman has just constructed a 75-foot-high telephone pole in which, not telephone pole, but... (laughs) Maybe it was. I'll ask him. No, I won't. (laughs) I'd interest you to know that Haman's just constructed this 75-foot telephone pole. Keep saying that, telephone pole. I like the word, telephone pole, telephone pole, telephone pole. Upon which he was going to hang Mordecai. You know, Mordecai, the one that saved your life. Xerxes. Hang him on it. Verse 10. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. 
Does that answer the question about where pride leads? This enslaved man became an enslaved, ignorant man who became an enslaved, ignorant, desperate man who then became a very dead man. That's where it leads. Question number three. Is there hope? Is there hope? Well, not for Haman. No way. He's, he's gone. He's out of here. Not for Haman. There's no hope for him. Okay? He, he's a lost cause. But we're not. We're not. There is hope for us, and there is a cure. And the answer is not, well, go to church, be good, pray more, try not to assert power, try not to cut people off in traffic, and just be sweet. That's not the answer. It's not. C.S. Lewis tells us in that chapter, The Great Sin, C.S. Lewis says, the first step is to realize that you're proud. That's the first step. He says, nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. That's the first step. And Haman would never be there. And that's why he's a lost cause. But, but let's think for just a minute about what Haman wanted. And we just... What is it that Haman really wanted? Remember in his story, he, he wanted to wear the king's robe. He wanted to ride the king's horse. And he truly believed that if the whole world saw that he was honored by one as great as Xerxes, then wow, my life counts. My life matters. You know, I'm loved by someone as significant as the king. You know, Haman wanted uh, what Tolkien talks about, the praise of the praiseworthy. Haman wanted to receive extravagant love by the most excellent lover. That's what he wanted. And you know what? You want that. You want that, and I want that. We do. And that's not wrong. It's not. It's real. When you, when you boil it down, that's what we were created for, you see. We were created to receive extravagant love from the most excellent lover. So Haman's problem was not that he went after the wrong thing. It's that he was trying to passionately pursue the wrong king. That's what his problem was. And so what Esther tells us is that there is a better king The book of Esther makes us long for a a king who is of ultimate glory, a king who came to earth from heaven, who was stripped of his splendor, who was stripped of his father's clothes, and who reverses places. Jesus does voluntarily on that telephone pole what Haman did involuntarily. He was impaled on a Roman cross for our sins so that the wrath of God may be subsided. Which is why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Haman's tragedy is that he died for his own sins. He carried his sin and his guilt into his death. And Jesus' death changes that for all of his people. Because if you are in Christ when you die... You will not carry your sin and your guilt into your death because Christ did it for you. If you're in Christ, you will never know what it's like to die a sin-bearing death because of Jesus. 
the embodiment not of pride as Haman was, but the embodiment of humility. I am meek and humble in heart, Jesus says. And do not misread that verse there. Don't think for one minute that that, that has to do with somehow being a kind of a milk toast, kind of a sappy person. No, 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 no. The Bible says that humility is when we hold power in the service of others for the glory of God. That's what Jesus did. He surrendered his status. He deployed all of his resources. He used all of his influence, not for himself, but out of service to his Father for us. Don't you remember before Christ washed the feet of his disciples. In John chapter 13, verse 3, prior to washing the feet of the disciples, John 13, verse 3 says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. John 13, 3. And then immediately after that, he washes the feet of his disciples. Why? Because he knows who he is. And that's why in John 17, 22, When Jesus prays to his Father, he prays for all believers. And this, what a beautiful verse. Jesus says, I have given them the glory you gave me. Haman didn't have to pursue glory. Jesus was willing to give him his. That's the kind of God we worship. And so the answer is not, listen, the answer is not, well, I'm never going to hold a position of power or influence or try to do well or succeed or improve or grow myself or my career or my company or my church. That's not the answer. It's not. Don't walk out of here, please, with that impression, please. To not give your all out of fear that others will think you proud is really just another form of pride. It is. The answer is, I will covenant to do all of these things and use all of the gifts and talents and abilities that God has given me and give back to him for his glory in the service of others. And that's what we see in Esther's chapters 8 and 9 when Esther and Mordecai hold power in the service of God's people for the glory of God as they ruthlessly eliminate evil. You see, the difference between humility and pride is Humble people know who the real king is. That's the difference. Do we? Do we? I pray so. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that we as a church, when we serve, when we serve at Jesus' days, when we serve in the Dominican, and Ethiopia, and Peru, and El Paso, and in our weekend of service in September, I pray that we do this because we are holding influence and responsibility for the glory of God in the service of others. Church, it is never glorious to seek one's own glory, but it is exceedingly glorious to pursue God's. So let's do that. Or as John the Baptist said, He must become greater, and I must become lesser. Amen?